Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Alice Litchen, Head of Education at the NSS. Your regular host, Emma Parks, will be back next episode. This week, I spoke with Andrew Slidell, an attorney at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. You may remember that Andrew joined us for episode 25 to discuss American and American-style religious exceptionism in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we talked about the role that secularist issues are playing in the ongoing US presidential election, the extent to which US parties and voters are sorting along religious lines or polarizing on secularist issues, and the challenges these pose to non-partisan organizations like the FFRF. Andrew had a lot of really interesting stuff to say that we had to cut down a little bit for time or just to keep on topic. If you're interested in having stuff like that available as maybe bonus content for members, then please let us know. Also, let us know if you're interested in these international episodes. Do you want to know more about secularist issues in particular other countries? Would you like to see that more compared and contrast to the situation in the UK? Feedback is always welcome and there's more information at the end of the episode. So with no further delay, here's my discussion with Andrew Seidel. Andrew, welcome back to the NSS podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to join you, as always. If we could start with a bit of an overview for our audience, to what extent are separation of church and state issues important in this upcoming election? I think they're absolutely crucial. Uh, You know, one of the things that we are fighting here in the United States is Christian nationalism. The idea that the United States is a Christian nation, that we've strayed from those Christian foundations, and uh, they use the language of return to justify a lot of public policy right now, some downright evil public policy. I mean, Christian nationalism seized power in 2016. It was one of, if not the best predictor of a Trump voter, thinking that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. And so, you know, a lot of the policies that that the Trump administration has adopted, things like the Muslim ban, um, are, are just perfectly blatant Christian nationalism. Many of these things are explicitly Christian nationalist, but for a lot of voters, they still don't understand that link. So while we talk about other issues, they aren't necessarily tied for many uh, people in the United States to Christian nationalism itself or tied to the religious issues. So people will be against the Muslim ban and certainly against the child separation policy, but not realize the extent to which Christian nationalism has influenced that particular issue. I'm curious that given how polarizing these issues have become, particularly along party lines, does this create problems for you as a nonpartisan organization? It does. It does. So one of the rules in the United States uh, is that to maintain your tax-exempt status, you can't engage in electoral politics. So you can't endorse or oppose or appear to endorse or oppose a candidate for public office. So we've had to work very, very carefully to uh, toe that line. And, you know, the, the rule allows you to engage on issues. So you can engage on the Muslim ban and on the child separation policy. You just can't be seen to uh, be endorsing or opposing a candidate for public office. But because, as you've said, this state church separation generally and Christian nationalism more broadly 
has really broken across party lines, that's become increasingly difficult. And it's something that, that we we value and we think is a great rule. Uh, so we really do go out of our way uh, to be above reproach. Uh, but it has certainly become harder, uh, especially the closer we get to the election. One of the striking aspects of the Trump presidency appears to be its embracing of white nationalism and Christian nationalism. And it seems that the polling shows that this has driven particularly white liberals further to, um, for want of a better word, the left on racial justice issues, and that this mirrors other historical uh, polarization trends. But on the Christian nationalism issue, there doesn't appear to have been that same backlash. So liberals don't necessarily appear to become stronger advocates of church-state separation in response. Uh, is that accurate? And why might that be? I think it is accurate to a certain extent. Um, I, I, but, I'll, but I'll add to that by saying I don't think there has been no backlash. I think the backlash that you're seeing has been less explicit and more on... I guess more on the demographic side of things, I would say. Uh, so there has been an exodus away from churches in America. The younger generation in particular is fleeing the church. And that exodus, was it, it, it accelerated under the Trump administration. And I think in large part because they were using and abusing religion as a political tool as a cudgel to beat people over the head and say, this, this is why we need to do this. And, and logically, it didn't make a lot of sense for people. And it was, again, being used to justify this hateful and evil public policy, things like separating children from their families at the border, things like opposing equal marriage for LGBTQ Americans. I mean, we are now poised, as you and I are recording this, uh, the Senate is likely going to vote in a Supreme Court justice, a new justice who is going to take away, she's likely, Amy Coney Barrett is likely going to write the opinion that overturns Roe versus Wade and takes away women's uh, right to reproductive choice. She's likely going to be the turning point vote, the flip when it comes to equal marriage. If there is a challenge to that in the future, I could see the court overruling the Obergefell decision, which, which allowed and finally said, yes, we do have equal marriage in this country. And I think a lot of the backlash that we're seeing is rather than people opposing religion and politics and favoring the state separation of state and church, just leaving religion altogether and saying, I don't want that. Is there a, a danger in that demographics, uh, the, the underlying assumption there that as people leave religion, they necessarily become what we would call secularists, you know, as you might say, church-state separation activists. Uh, there's no reason, for example, you know, if, if we look at President Trump as a perfect example, by most credible accounts, he's an atheist. He's, he doesn't appear to be in any, in any way personally religious, although, of course, many supporters sincerely are. Is it that this Christian nationalism might be more about identity and less about belief? I mean, I, I think that Christian nationalism is very much about an identity, and it is this incestuous marriage between religion and politics. And and I was, I was speaking about this with a couple other uh, professors, uh, sociologists who teach about Christian nationalism here in the United States, uh, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry. And one of the ideas that we were sort of exploring is whether or not 
American religions are actually reorganizing along political lines. So the identifier of a particular Christian sect is becoming far less important to most American Christians than the fact that they are Christians and then either conservative or liberal. And, and it appears to be that religion is reorganizing along political lines. Is Trump uh, <laughs> Christian or not? Let me just address it. I mean, he, he identifies as Christian. I think you're right. Like, he clearly doesn't know a lot about Christianity. I mean, this, this to me is just one of the most haunting moments in, in the last uh, four years. But I mean, and it seems like f almost a decade ago, but this was just on June 1st, Trump had peaceful protesters gassed, beaten, brutalized with rubber bullets so that he could walk to a church and pose with a Bible. So it was this, this haunting, despicable scene that encapsulated so much of what was wrong and un-American with the sinister and exclusionary movement that is Christian nationalism. Um, and I, th I think that is also a good encapsulation of where that version of American Christianity is going. Um, it is a, for lack of a better word, shallow version of Christianity. But that has often been the case throughout American history. I mean, th th this has never been something that was that was deeply personal to them. It was more, I consider myself to be a Christian because that is what it means to be a good person in American society. And that is the demographic shift that we are really seeing. And I, I think soon the default position is going to be, no, I'm not religious. No, I'm, I'm not a Christian. And instead of that meaning I'm, people are admitting that they're quote unquote a bad person, it just means that they, they don't adhere to this relatively volatile and virulent strain of Christianity. And you're, you're certainly right to identify that being non-religious doesn't necessarily mean that someone is an advocate for a secular government. Uh, but I think there's a lot less support for Christian nationalism in a country where most of the people are non-religious. I think we've referred to that in the past as a, a secular deficit isn't, I mean, isn't it, as we would argue, you know, even if 100% of people were different religions, that secular government would still be a necessary guarantee for freedom. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I mean, the best argument for that is that there's no such thing as the freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. So even if every American was devoutly religious, I, I would, to me, that would be a stronger argument for the separation of state and church. But again, in terms of real politic, that that's just not not the case. When you were last on the show, we were discussing concerns that you were raising about state funding for religious services. And this is something we're also seeing in the UK in the response to the pandemic. Given the stricter legal separation of church and state that you have than we do in the UK, where do you think this is going? Well, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about where we are in the United States with that right now. Uh, I mean, the Trump administration funneled millions, billions uh, to churches under something called the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. And they actively tried to favor churches and religious organizations. They had these, the White House had these secret calls uh, with churches that support uh, Trump and his administration and his policy goals. Uh, 
advising them on how to get at this money more easily. They expanded all they, they, they added all kinds of exemptions into the rules for distributing this money that made it easier for churches and religious organizations, not only to get the money, but often to double or even triple or quadruple dip into the funding. Um, so it, it was, it was deeply alarming. And in the interim we saw the Supreme Court decide this case called the Espinoza case, uh, which essentially said that Christian parents have a right to access taxpayer funds to pay for religious schooling for their children. And that is just fundamentally un-American. I mean, one of, one of the founding values of this country is that it is a tenant of every citizen's religious freedom. I, as an atheist, have a religious freedom right not to be taxed and then have the government turn around and give that money to a religious organization. And the Supreme Court uh, a couple months ago flipped that on its head and said, instead, parents who are religious have a right to access those taxpayer funds. Uh, and this is part of a broader trend from the federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular that we are seeing. So uh, to, to make sure I understand that, is this uh, a transferring of rights from individuals to institutions? Well, it's, it, I wouldn't necessarily phrase it like that right now um, because the decision just came down, so it's hard to know how broad it's going to be in that respect. I think the better way to say it is that the Supreme Court flipped the right. So it used to be that every citizen had a right not to be taxed by their government in a way that uh, violated their religious liberties, that would then go and support a religion that's not their own. That was the right. Every single citizen had it. And now the Supreme Court has said, these Christian parents want to send their, their kids to a private religious school, and they have a right to access the public purse to do that. Um, and it's a, essentially, they said it's a right based in non-discrimination, which um, it, it hopefully doesn't really make sense to your listeners. It's not because I'm doing a bad job describing it. It's because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so they ignored the religious freedom right that was important to our founders and instead just focused on the fact that these Christians weren't able to do this particular thing. They weren't able to take advantage of sending their kids to private religious school. And therefore that was discrimination. So they only focused in on the Christian parents who were uh, claiming persecution in the, in the case and not everybody else. Uh, so by narrowing their field of view just to, to those particular parents and only looking at that right, they uh, they missed the forest for the trees. I was recently giving evidence before the Welsh Parliament in this country about the future of religious education in schools. And they kind of split it into two evidence sessions, the uh, religious representatives in the morning and then later on the uh, quote-unquote non-religious representatives. And it was interesting that we in the non-religious uh, session were talking about the rights of children not to be proselytised too. And in the morning session, the religious representatives were talking about the right of religious schools to proselytize rather than, but are you saying that rests with the, the, that rests with the institution or with the parents? In, uh, is it an individual right 
or the parents, according to this argument. I mean, I think according to this argument, essentially what the Supreme Court did was was create a hierarchy of rights and religious freedom is a is a higher right, but they, they narrowed it down to Christian religious freedom. So, I mean, uh, I would really encourage everybody who's listening. Um, I, I wrote uh, the brief to the Supreme Court for FFRF and a bunch of other secular groups. I, I co-authored it. Um, it's, it's a short brief um it's 18 pages you know but that includes a bunch of uh introductory materials uh the case is espinoza versus montana department of revenue and i wrote it so that anybody could understand that not just the judges i mean you know religious liberty was in was definitely imperiled endangered in that case but the case was not about discrimination it was about government compelled support of religion if you want to subsidize a religion fine but those donations have to be voluntary and the court abandoned that principle. So we reached this disastrous moment in American history, the, the era of government-compelled tithing. Turning to the other side of the equation, as it were, is there a sense that the Democratic presidential ticket, the uh, Biden-Harris ticket, have a competing vision of the separation of church and state and how that should work? Yeah, so this is one of the areas where, given our tax exemption, I have to be careful. Um, but there, there is... I think a distinct difference uh, between the views of state church separation in the t the two tickets right now. I, I think I think that is is pretty clear to anybody who's watching. Uh, that being said, I mean religion has been used by both parties extensively to show uh, that they are worthy of holding elected public office in the United States. I would like to see far, far less religion being involved both in our politics and in our government, you know, so both in the political campaigning side of things and in our government. Um, and I think we are nearing the point, again, speaking demographically, where that is going to happen. Um, after the 2018 election, I wrote an article looking at the share of the electorate that was non-religious uh, and how it has just in increased massively uh, in the past decade. And I expect uh, in this two years since I wrote that article to uh, the election that we're about to have, that that's going to increase even more. So I, I think we are going to near the point where pandering on religious issues for voters is going to be less and less fruitful for politicians. Politicians in the UK have long looked to harness the power of the faith sectors and faith communities in delivering public services. I see the historical parallels in, in the United States. So you had under George W. Bush, I believe, the introduction of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, which were not rolled back, but expanded under the Obama-Biden presidency albeit with protections against proselytization and discrimination. Would a Biden-Harris presidency roll back or alter the delivery of such faith-based uh, public service provision? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one of the things that uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation advocated for here in the States uh, prior to the Trump administration taking office was for shutting that part of the White House down entirely uh, because we thought it would be used 
uh, to reward this Christian nationalist coalition that put Trump in the White House. And that is absolutely what we have seen happen. I mean, this is, I think, probably, and this is this is a hard thing to say um, with any certainty. Hopefully, there will be some sort of accounting in the future. But one of certainly one of the most corrupt uh, pockets in the Trump administration. And I mean, Paul, Paula White, who's this uh, evangelical mega preacher here based in Florida, who's been intimately tied to the, the Trump political campaign and now has a job in, in the White House in this office. Um, this is part of the groups that were uh, on the phone calls, uh, hosting the phone calls with churches uh, so that they could get access to that Paycheck Protection Program funding. Um, I think it is a corrupt part of this administration. And that was really how it was started in the W Bush White House. I mean, that was that was part of its purpose. There's been some great reporting and even some books that have been written on this subject. I mean, so I, I would like to see that shut down entirely. And that's something that the Freedom From Religion Foundation will certainly be advocating for in the future. Advocates of secular government could take a a stricter or a more a, a looser, more accommodationist stance on issues such as these. So some people might just say that you shouldn't allow faith-based providers to bid for any public service contracts, whereas others would say there needs to be strong protections against proselytization and they need to be bound by anti-discrimination policies. If either of those restrictions were put in place, for example, get rid of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and say, option one, you can't have faith-based providers bid for these contracts, and option two, they need to be bound by non-prostatization, anti-discrimination clauses. Would those restrictions pass constitutional muster given the uh, changes in jurisprudence you've been talking about? I mean, that's a fantastic question. I, I think already I would say, well, first, let's let's say that uh, whether or not they're constitutional ought to be separated from whether or not they would survive a challenge in the court system as it is as it currently exists. Um, the federal judiciary has already been packed with Christian nationalist judges. Um, the Supreme Court has has been taken over, essentially. Uh, so there's already a great deal of hostility for state church separation in the federal judiciary that's not reflected in America's founding documents or founding values that that really did, in, in, in a way that I write about in the founding myth, in, invent the separation of state and church. So there's sort of the the real politic question, you know, would they would a challenge survive, at, or would those uh, restrictions survive a challenge in the courts? And uh, what would the the Constitution or our jurisprudence say about those restrictions under a, a less partisan, less captured uh, court system? And uh, I think it's it's pretty clear uh, that we, we've actually already seen and will see this term, the Supreme Court, say not only that uh, churches and religious organizations have a right to, to access public funds to provide these services, there's a case right now out of Philadelphia, the Fulton versus Philadelphia case, where we're seeing this. Um, 
and I think this, the Supreme Court's going to answer your question um, in a way that that I'm not going to like. That's that's certainly the the, the prediction that I would have. However, it is perfectly within reason for the government to attach any type of string to government funding. Yes, you can have this money only if you provide your services in a non-discriminatory fashion and you don't force people to listen to a prayer or to read the Bible before they access your services. That's perfectly acceptable. And historically, there, there'd be no um, problem with that. It's just that in under this judiciary, uh, they would see that as, they would claim that that is hostile to religion. And I think they're going to do that. Um, the, the Philadelphia case involves um, a Catholic charities organization that was the city was contracting with, uh, and the, the, the Catholic charities said, well, we're not going to place children with LGBTQ families. And the city said, okay, well then we aren't going to contract with you because that violates our non-discrimination policies. And so the Catholic charity student said, not only do we have a right to discriminate, we have a right to have this city contract with you. Uh, and, and the court is likely going to uphold that, which is just it's mind-blowing to me. Interesting enough, we often find ourselves pointing out to those who want a greater faith-based uh, public service provision that many such providers have said they are happy to have anti-prostatization and anti-discrimination policies, uh, though not all, obviously. Keeping on jurisprudence, I remember studying A-level comparative politics, and for you to you know, this would be equivalent of last year of high school, and the textbook case of illustrating America's approach would be the uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman uh, Supreme Court uh, case, which led to the Lemon Test. And it was such a textbook example that when we were writing our own educational resources, we used it as an example of uh, from around the world of approaches to church-state separation. Perhaps maybe you could sum up the lemon test idea of how to judge church-state separation, what that paradigm was, and then can you sum up what the new paradigm appears to be? Sure. So, I mean, the lemon test comes from the Lemon versus Kurtzman case, which was 1971, and the Supreme Court ruled essentially that... that um, there was a Pennsylvania law that said tax funds, taxpayer funds going to religious schools, that violates the First Amendment, which is if people have been listening to the previous part of this podcast, they're probably thinking, well, how can you <laughs> square that with the Espinoza case that Andrew has been talking about? Uh, you can't. Uh, but the lemon test itself, it basically has three questions that you ask, uh, the purpose, the effect and the entanglement. Does the statute, law, regulation, government action, does it have a secular or religious purpose? That's the first question. What's the purpose of it? Then the, se the second one is the effect. So what's the effect of the rule or the government action? Um, does, it, does it advance religion or does it inhibit religion? Because in either way, it could be unconstitutional. And then there's the entanglement prong. Um, and it does... Does the government action ex excessively entangle the government with religion? Uh, and that can take a couple different 
formulation. So, for instance, if the government would have to have a lot of really careful oversight of a religious organization as a result, um, that could be entangling the government with religion. So purpose, effect, and entanglement. And it's important to note that that case, the Lemon case, was summing up three decades, really, of previous cases that had addressed this separation of state and church. So it wasn't just inventing this test out of thin air. It was looking at all of the previous cases the Supreme Court had decided on religious freedom and state church separation and synthesizing this test out of those cases. Uh, so it, it w- and I, in my opinion, it was a, it was a very good and useful test. It was much maligned uh, because the outcomes that that test would have dictated in many instances would have been politically unpopular. And so, in an effort to avoid making those politically unpopular decisions, the court began creating all kinds of exceptions to the lemon test and punching holes in it. Um, One of the most famous is in the 1983 case, Marsh versus Chambers. Uh, The Supreme Court said, yes, it's totally fine for legislative bodies to pray before their sessions in the United States. Uh, So this was about the Nebraska legislature. They were having a chaplain come in and say a prayer before they would legislate each day. And the court said, that's fine. because we've got a really long history of doing that in the United States. And the the long history has nothing to do with the lemon test. It doesn't talk about the purpose or the effect or entanglement. So uh, the court just said, well, we're not, this is just basically just an exception to applying the lemon test. Uh, So the lemon test is a great test, except that it dictated politically unpopular outcomes. And because our courts are not as blind or as devoted to justice as they ought to be, uh, they started punching all these holes in it and pretty much now have abandoned it, if not killed it without, without officially killing it, essentially said, we're never, we're not going to use it again. So I've got an educational resource. This is, uh, comparing countries around the world and their approach to church state separation. Is there a way to summarize America in two sentences? (laughs) Does that remain to be seen? Yeah, I mean, I think we are going to see, (laughs) I think we're going to see a big shakeup. I mean, part of this is there's a big question in the country right now about what we're going to do about the federal court system with, again, as we're speaking, a Supreme Court justice is being rammed through a very uh, fast and cursory confirmation process. In my mind, probably not entirely qualified for the job, uh, though there would certainly be people on my side of the aisle who would would disagree with that statement, um, who has said that her religion should trump the law and who is going to be put on the Supreme Court after 60 million people have already voted in the election. The courts have been packed already, so there has to be a solution to that court packing. Uh, something needs to be done. And that is something that we've been discussing at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. The, the pretty, We are essentially coming to the point where re- th- this revelation where to fight for a secular America means to fight for a massive overhaul of the court system first. Because uh, that, that is essentially where we are. So um, that being said, 
all that is a prelude to say, I think it depends on whether or not that is done, which route the courts will take in terms of um, interpreting the separation of state and church or weaponizing religious liberty and essentially having this hierarchy of rights where religious freedom, quote unquote, this, this weaponized version of religious freedom uh, is a, a, a super right, a right that is above every other right that exists and allows, uh, essentially creates this, this favored, privileged class. Um, you know, but we talked about that, that Trump walked to the church to for that photo op the point of that malignant farcical stroll was to show that trump and this nation are churched that we are bible believing and bible beating that we are a christian nation and anyone who disagrees should be beaten and gassed the point is to was to elevate one group above all others the goal was to rewrite and redefine our constitution so that it creates two classes of people Christians and everyone else, or, or actually, to be more accurate, the right kind of conservative Christian and everyone else, sort of that that realignment uh, that we were talking about earlier. So that that is and has been the goal of Christian nationalism, to codify Christian privilege and elevate the right kind of Christian to this special favored class and everybody else is second class citizens. And whether or not we are going to be able to defeat that in the courts is going to depend greatly on the makeup of the courts. Well, uh, thanks so much, Andrew. Before you go, there's something I, I'd be very curious to get your view on. And it's a narrative that I've been reading about a lot recently that is not particularly happy. And so I don't necessarily want to go along with it. But here goes. This narrative goes that the, the 20th century was a high watermark for global liberal democracies and liberal secularism. So new nations which were liberated from European colonialism at this time looked to the United States as the model for modernity, the model of uh, what a liberal de democracy should be. And so liberal secularism just came along with that. And uh, now that that time has simply passed, that the rising powers are no longer liberal democracies, but Ill illiberal democracies or outright autocracies. And so it's no surprising that that sort of secular form of government is no longer seen as you know, the in thing, modernity. What do you think of that? I mean, I'm probably not the best person to offer my opinion, but I, that certainly has never stopped me before. Uh, you know, I mean, Stephen Pinker... Uh, at Harvard has written a great deal about this. Uh, his last two books, really, Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment. Now, I think, touch on this at least. And to me, the answer is it's up to us whether or not that is true. That we have the ability to fight back against th that trend that's slouching towards authoritarianism and that it is up to us to stop it. And I, I certainly am never going to stop fighting against that one of the i think the the interesting and probably the only silver lining for the last four years at least for me personally is that this has highlighted so many of the deep seated flaws in our system and it's I, i've been using the term radicalized sort of jokingly radicalized me. Um, and and that's, that's not quite right. It, it has opened my eyes um, to, to these flaws in a way that 
I, I think I previously would have glossed over. Uh, so, I mean, to me, that is should be a call to secular arms. That should be a call to fight. I mean, I often go, well, I used to go around the country. Now I virtually go around the country and talk about these issues. And one of the things I try to explain to the younger generation is that whatever issues, whatever progressive issues they care about, limiting the power of religion in our government, ending the sense of Christian entitlement in our country is virtually a panacea, right? If you want better education, if you want full funding for public schools instead of vouchers for private religious schools, if you want accurate science about evolution and sex taught in our classrooms, right? Curbing religious power in the government will help there. Do you want full civil and political rights for LGBTQ, for women, for minorities? Do you want reproductive justice and choice to be fully realized? Do you want a greener world and a healthier environment? Do you want America to get serious about the global climate crisis and to shun its deniers? Do you want access to better and universal healthcare? Do you want scientific research to be guided by scientists, right? Do you want our response to the pandemic to be guided by science and not wishful thinking? If, if we end Christian nationalism and religious encroachments into government power, we'll see progress on every one of these issues. Uh, so uh, all of that is to say that I think the answer to your question is it's, it's completely up to us and we have to fight. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.